Bitcoin doesn't care about XRP. XRP cares about XRP. You look at the XRP chart, it was trading 47 cents, then it ripped up to 95 cents and has sort of resolved around 76 cents. That's a that's a 60% rally or a 50% rally, something in there. That's monster, that's monster price action. Now, the volatility of that asset is probably determined by, uh, you know, somewhat determined by the fact that it's far less liquid than Bitcoin. Um, but it tells you that the ruling was spectacularly positive for crypto. All right, welcome back to another episode of 1000X. This time you are stuck with me and Jonah as we talk to you about the markets. We'll have a very special guest at some point in the future and very excited about it. But for now, we are going to talk about all of the things that have happened over the last two weeks since we last joined you, of which there's been a lot. A lot of things. Bitcoin, Bitcoin almost hit 32. It's back down to 30. As we're recording this podcast, a judge ruled in the Ripple lawsuit, and Ripple seems to have come out of that in a much stronger position than they were before, and it's opened the doors for other altcoins to potentially be deemed not securities if they're issued and traded in a very specific way. And the market in general has reacted very favorably to that outside of Bitcoin. So ETH BTC is higher. Most alt ratios against Bitcoin are higher, but Bitcoin is actually below where the news came out. And so that is, you know, a it's telling. It tells you a lot about the type of market participant. It tells you a lot about the fears in the market. You have the NASDAQ ripping uh, pretty pretty hard. S&P is doing, doing quite well. Fears around inflation are coming down. The cry after the Ripple case was that we're past everything bad and that Bitcoin could only go up and now we're back down. So Jonah, what do you make of that? It's a great intro. Um, I think there's a bit of an issue with Bitcoin right now, which is that there are still some issues surrounding Binance and some fear about what might happen with uh, the general liquidity climate in crypto. So let's say you're at a traditional finance institution like PIMCO or BlackRock or or even a hedge fund like Millennium, and you want to buy Bitcoin spot, institutionally, it's probably difficult for you to do so. <clears throat> so what are your options if you want to get long Bitcoin? Well, you can invest in one of these crypto funds. You know, they're, they're asset managers that get you long Bitcoin. And those asset managers have seen four consecutive weeks of the largest inflows uh, of the last... 12, you know, last 12 months, right? So those funds are getting inflows. You can buy CME futures, which traded a significant premium to spot, or you can buy one of these, you know, if you don't, if you can't touch spot, you, you have to buy one of these discounted ETP products like the, you know, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust or Bitwise or something. Um, and if you want to buy spot, you know, uh, you're, you're looking at custody issues and all of the crypto native stuff that people listening to this podcast are probably familiar with, but you know maybe a lot of hedge funds and asset managers and pension funds aren't necessarily comfortable with just yet. So I think the best way to track this is to look at CME futures basis. So where do the futures trade relative to spot? And right now, um, the futures are trading 
12% annualized above spot. So that tells you that there is tradfied demand for Bitcoin length um, and not enough. And, and that, that tradfi length exceeds you know, the, the spot bottleneck that I just discussed. Call it a regulatory bottleneck, call it a, an operational bottleneck. You know, if, if uh, th- th- you should not be able to earn 12% a year buying spot and shorting Bitcoin futures against it. That is a riskless trade. But clearly there aren't enough arbitrageurs out there able to do that. So it, it shows you that there's demand for Bitcoin, but a bit of a, a liquidity and market structure problem. That, that will ultimately get solved, but but hasn't been solved just yet. So I think I think Bitcoin would be higher if it weren't for the fact that you have market structure issues getting worked out right now. That makes a ton of sense. Jonah, some practical advice here. If you want to go look at the CME futures curve, where can you go do that? Um, if you have a Bloomberg terminal, it's very easy. I haven't actually tried doing it on, on TradingView, but ultimately if you go to the CME website, um, anyone can do this. You can go to CME website, pull up the contract spec for Bitcoin futures, and then the CME will publish what's called an end of day report. It's a little clunky, but you can just go in and, and look at all the different futures prices at the end of the day relative to Bitcoin spot at the same time. That should be helpful. And I think your point your, your point there is very clear, which is that people can't come in. There, there are a lot of people that can't come in and actually buy spot and perform the trade. And you have to assume that the, the trade leg that's difficult to access is the spot leg, right? Because if you add, there, I'm sure there are a lot of market neutral funds out there that would love to come in and capture that 12%, especially because it's levered, right? Because you, you you only have to post something like 35% on the C, on the CME futures in order to, in order to go and trade them. So it's, you know, it, it's quite, it's quite capital efficient from, from that, from that perspective. Uh, I guess what the, 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 the one thing that really stands out here is that for the last year we haven't really had any contango in C- in CME futures so i do think some of that is a lack of accessibility to spot and i assume that the spot market has gotten harder to access for a lot of people but a portion of that is definitely i would assume people betting on the ETF at least some some amount of that and just general demand for crypto, like in a bear, when when the market's selling off, nobody's getting long futures. They're using them as a liquid instrument to short Bitcoin as it's going down. One of the things that always worries me is when you have really good news and you can't get higher, and it doesn't bring in the capital that you were expecting it to bring in. That's generally a pretty bearish side. So I think it goes both ways. If bad news can't bring the market lower, that's bullish. If good news can't take the market higher, that's bearish. That's a great point. And, and just so, to interject one quick thing there before you continue, we normally when good news comes out and markets don't rally, I agree with you, it's bearish, but you, you sometimes just don't know why. And you have, to, you have to respect the price action and be cautious. Like here we actually have a working hypothesis as to why. So maybe the market structure just needs to untangle itself before this asset class can rally and you'll have, you know, lower prices to buy in the near future. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think people are just too worried about what the the DOJ may or may not do to Binance, what the SEC may or may not do to Binance. I think that there's just a lot of hesitation in the market right now. And you really, really, really have to believe that if you're buying 30K, you got to get to at least 40. 
right? For an asset as volatile as volatile as Bitcoin, you want good returns. And the issue is that if you're buying, let's say you're buying 2K ETH or you're buying 30K BTC, you want 40K or you want 3K from ETH. And if those two prices are not reasonable in your mind, then you're not going to deploy at those levels. And so what ends up happening is that the only people that buy those breakouts, the people that are buying 31, the people that are buying above 2K are the FOMO buyers, which are very weak-handed. So what you really need is I think you need to clear the air. You, we're really only going to go higher once we get a resolution for the market players that we just that we just talked about. Once that comes to an end, whether it's positive or negative, then the market then the market can go higher. And one thing that's I think useful for viewers and listeners to appreciate is, and I've seen this happen over and over, is that because there isn't new money coming into the market in a substantial way, one of the best ways to track the validity of a move is to go on Coinalyze and just look to see how much open interest was opened during that move. So for example, there was a move to 31K three weeks ago that was one-to-one correlated with open interest increase. To the downside, every time we get lower, uh, what you see is you see a lot of shorts pile in, uh, right? So, I mean, as I'm speaking right now, there have been a lot of shorts that have piled into piled into Bitcoin, sub 30K. Once you go above 30, they probably close. And so really, this has just turned into an extremely PVP market that you're what do you mean just by PVP. Just, just player versus player. It's not, uh, there's a, a you know, in, in RuneScape, uh, video game that I, I used to play that listeners should know about because I've talked about it at, at length on, on previous podcasts. Uh, you know, you, you used to go one of the one of the things you would do when you were bored is you'd go into this place called the wilderness and you'd find other people around your level and you'd just fight them. Now, most of the time, it's a player it's a player versus computer or a player versus monster game. You're, you're battling the video game itself. You're not battling other, other players. And, you know, when I was bored, I'd go battle, I'd go battle other players. And that's kind of what's happening here is you're not, you're not buying from retail that's selling to you. You're not selling to retail that's buying from you. You're not buying even from institutions that are right. There's no, there's none of that. It's you're buying from other people that are looking to play you for the greater fool. And you're looking to play them for the greater fool. And there's no genuine, you know, coagulation of, uh, acceptance at this moment in time. And so what you get left with is a lot of very choppy price movement in the market. You get left with a 3% move up and then a 3% move down over and over until people quit. And generally what I've seen is that this type of price action is not bullish. It's generally bearish. And so my bets are that this range, this 30 to 32K range, X, a, re- a positive resolution from Binance or Tether likely resolves lower because there's a lack of interest in the space right now. So you really either need, well, uh, let me let me add another caveat. An ETF approval, a, a genuine approval could do that. But at this point, the probability of an ETF getting approved isn't likely going up or down, likely staying the same over the next you know few few months and so it's really a resolution resolution on the other fronts 
I mean, just a quick comment on that. Uh, when I was when I was a kid, I played Street Fighter. I went into the woods and played Street Fighter with people of, of equal talent to me. So that's you know just to give you a sense of the date range between Avi's video game life and mine. Um, I think Street Fighter is pretty awesome. Anyway, uh, I I think I have a slightly different take on it from you. Just looking at the chart, looking at the daily chart, the daily candles, what really ripped the market was the BlackRock ETF news back in June, right? Bitcoin doesn't care about XRP. XRP cares about XRP. If you look at the XRP chart, it was trading 47 cents, then it ripped up to 95 cents and has sort of resolved around 76 cents. That's a that's a 60% rally or a 50% rally, something in there. That's monster. That's monster price action. Now, the volatility of that asset is probably determined by, uh, you know, somewhat determined by the fact that it's far less liquid than Bitcoin. Um, but it tells you that the ruling was spectacularly positive for crypto. Um, but I think ultimately the thesis for altcoins, I think what the price action is telling you is that the thesis for altcoins, it's just an entirely different marketplace from Bitcoin right now. Like Bitcoin is a macro asset. It's digital gold, it's de-dollarization, it's peer-to-peer money, it's uh, you know potentially a threat to dollar dominance and global trade over a 50-year time horizon. Like You have all these overarching narratives with, for Bitcoin. They don't really overlap with the, the narratives for altcoins, which are more like, hey, can, you know, can projects issue math-based, um, math-based sort of, let's just call them instruments for now. We don't even know what they are anymore, securities or not. So uh, ultimately... ETH BTC, you brought it up earlier, that should be the barometer for this dichotomy. And it didn't rally that much. It rallied from 0.61 to point, oh, sorry, 0.061 to 0.063 on the ruling. And like if you look at some of the you know, the alt L1s, they they popped a bit versus ETH, but they then they're kind of drifting back off again. I, I don't I think what all of this tells you, zooming way back out, um, is the market just cares about an ETF. The market doesn't care about whether these things are securities or not right now, you know? And if there's an ETF, then you have <clears throat> probably a, a universe that contains trillions or tens of trillions of dollars that can just easily click trade Bitcoin, whereas right now your universe is probably under a trillion. Yeah, I, I, I think I think all of that is fair. I think the one asset that actually cared about what was going on is Ripple or XRP. And you can see that in its in its pricing. And one thing that I was thinking about that the ruling didn't cover is what are the criteria for determining whether something is genu- genuinely security? What are the actions and behaviors of the people that have issued the token that make it a security versus not a security? Because y- you basically need to make the case for all these other assets that they've acted in a similar fashion to the Ripple management team with their with regard to their interaction with the token and so they weren't promotional they were you know th- there are all these different uh, criteria that go into it it's not the ruling says yes xrp sold on an exchange is not a security but it's very clear that the criteria cannot and is not just if it's sold on an exchange and is a token then it's not a security Obviously, if Apple were to come out and they were to say, hey, guys, 
we're going to take our equity and you give it back to us. We're, we're going to give you a token and that token is going to trade on Uniswap and everything else is going to be the same. That doesn't make that token a not, not a security, right? You see, you see what I'm saying? So there, there are other... There, there are other criteria that go into it that may or may not foot with these other altcoins, which I think the market started to realize and sobered up. Now, that being said, the outcome I do think is helpful in that it sets some vague guidelines up about what you can do to potentially not be a security. If you act in these certain ways that the Ripple team has acted in, maybe you also can be deemed a not security if you take if you take that path. What that means for the rest of the alt market is that funds can be can use their judgment to allocate in a way that they couldn't really before because there was no criteria for using that judgment. And so in general, I think that this is bullish for the alt market. And I do think that we've seen a top in Bitcoin dollars. For, for parts of the alt market. Like I think that if you like it will cause a dispersion trade, meaning that tokens like Ethereum, you know, Vitalik never like did a deal with IBM to try and generate PR and issued them like a block of ETH, right? It was all just a, you know, an ICO where you paid Bitcoin, sent Bitcoin to an address and got some ETH back out of it. Um, pretty amazing trade for anyone who did that, by the way. But, uh, you know, then you have tokens like, um, don't want to name names, but you know tokens that have literally just taken massive chunks of value out of their foundation and just sent it to wallet addresses of Web two companies to try and generate PR, and uh, you know maybe that's not kosher according to you know what what this new ruling has has laid out in terms of what what could potentially be lawful and what what's not. So ultimately, um, I think some alts should rip like I, ETH. Uh, very bullish, very very bullish ETH, this ruling. Um, I think ETH has probably underperformed uh, the ruling. But other alts, I would be careful. I don't think this is a trade for the like the top 100. Yeah, that 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 I that I would agree with. I I do really, there are some altcoins that I really like. Uh, I'll just n name name out some here. In terms of, and again, not financial advice, never is financial advice. These are just altcoins that seem to be doing a good job generating traction for themselves. Uh, so optimism is one of them. They, it's done it's done a phenomenal job, better than most other assets out there, coordinating with other participants that want to build L2s and managing to extract value back to them. So for example... A uh, project that didn't do this well was Cosmos. Luna was built on top of Cosmos. It got to 100 billion market cap. Adam only got to 20 billion. It did a terrible job despite providing the base layer for a lot of different applications and a lot of different protocols, extracting value from that. Now, Optimism has done something different and they've actually gotten, you know, in, in, in writing, that they're going to get 10% of the fee of the sequencer fees generated by base Coinbase uh, is L2, and so Worldcoin is also building on Optimism, and there may be there there may be some economic agreement there, and there now can be economic agreements built into using the Optimism base stack so that Optimism holders benefit if their tech that was built by the Optimism Foundation 
actually gets used in other places. And they've done a very, very good job with this. And so I really like, I really like what they've done. Uh, I do think that Arbitrum benefits from this, uh, this, this knock-on, this knock-on effect as well, despite the fact that they're that they're competitors, uh, which we can which we can get into in a bit. And I and I, and one thing I've noticed is that uh, Link has been performing quite well today and yesterday, and I think a, a portion of that is because they finally released CCIP, which is an intercommunication protocol between uh, uh between uh, like their uh, their their layer to layer communication protocol and that was expected in q4 and it's come out a little bit early and so that's been that that's been good to see i think in general um in general what i found is that uh you know there are select altcoins that are doing well from a fundamental and perspective and that they're actually building the right things and they've They've tackled the right areas, and these guys have tended to do a lot better than the than, than the aggregate altcoin market. And I think that will that will continue. You you just mentioned doing the right things. Let's talk about what the right things are, because we haven't talked about altcoins for a while. They've just been this basket of accused tokens in in the you know in the world we live in. Now they're you know maybe we're in the first innings of a new bull cycle for altcoins. Maybe uh, have to figure this out and think through it. Every trader does. So. You know, we we seem to agree that some altcoins are amazing, or you know, have have potential at the very least, and others just stay away. It's not it's not an all altcoin market like it was in two thousand twenty one. Um, let's let's try to examine for the listeners, like let's 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 get your opinion, Avi, as as a crypto native, on the concept of are we moving to a multi chain world still, or is it really just going to be all about Ethereum? for you know on-chain computing over the course of the next cycle i i tend to think the latter i tend to think that you know your solana's nears and polka dots and all these other coins are just kind of these ecosystems are dead dead on arrival at this point you look at DeFi llama there's no tvl you look at the user counts and wallet addresses they're all just sort of like plateauing meanwhile the eth ecosystem and the two altcoins you just mentioned are you know which are part of it um, not Link, obviously, but Arbitrum and Optimism. Like that—that's the only ecosystem that seems to be flourishing in this in this bear market. So, is—is is the multi-chain thesis still alive for the next cycle? I, I vote no. I think it's it's time to write it off. What do you think? I think what ends up happening is you get projects that are willing to build on things like Solana, and Avalanche, and Near, and all of these other protocols, because if they're a competent, good team, uh, they can win that space uh they're probably when the when a bull market comes back there's probably still going to be incentive programs that these that these protocols run out and i yeah but incentive programs that's that's been the only draw so far like that doesn't last forever right right but what i'm what i'm saying what i'm saying is that uh, okay so here's here's my perspective john and maybe to clarify i don't think these guys are dead i think that they're going to experience a renaissance at some point because of that novelty factor. I don't necessarily think that they're going to be long-term successful, but because they have the ability to onboard people through the mechanism that I just described, they do have the potential to reach escape velocity and become real projects. What computational ability is possible on Sol that isn't possible, or on Solana rather, that isn't possible on Arbitrum or Optimism at this point? Like, do, does the tech matter? 
Yeah, it does. I think right now there's a decent amount. I think the issue is that there it's a it's a use case fit. I'll give you an example. And it's almost it's almost always a use case uh, fit, not necessarily a tech a tech fit. So there was a large operation maybe a year ago, eighteen months ago at this point, to get real world assets onboarded into crypto. And there were all these different protocols that were trying to do it. There were the, you know, protocols uh, that were at at the at the base level. Some protocols launched that they wanted to introduce KYC at the base level. They were an L1. They're like we're a fully KYC L1, um, and that's our edge because if you're an application and you have KYC, it doesn't it doesn't matter. You have to have KYC at the at the base level. And some of the applications are like, no, well, we've got KYC. At our level, and that's all you need. You don't need any. You don't need anything more than that. And some would say, "Well, you need composability," uh, and so we're going to build that first. And others would say, "You don't need composability, um, so we're not going to worry about that. We're going to worry about the ability to let people, like aggregate people, invest um, at scale." And so there are all these different approaches to bringing real-world assets on board. And there are all these things that had good tech. There were these things that had bad tech. But the reality was, at the end of the day. But the issue is that the people that were issuing these real world assets didn't know what to issue and didn't know how to do it and didn't know what would be useful or what wouldn't be useful. And so the one thing that we've seen over and over and over again is that uh, the constraint is not always the tech. The constraint is figuring out what to do with the tech, right? And starting and starting small. So th- th- what I'm I guess what I'm trying to say is that there there aren't that many things today that aren't building on crypto because it's far too slow or the tech isn't there. Uh, first, you have to start with well, what are what are we actually what are we actually building? And by the way, on real world assets, I think that we're getting to a point. Uh, Figure is a really interesting project that's been doing well, that's been generating revenues. Uh, they're a large issuer of uh, of of uh, mortgage backed securities now. Um, they, they are actually issuing things directly on chain and that's that's very very important as opposed to there's there's another you know area where people are taking assets they're putting them in SPV they're tokenizing the SPV and then they're trading the token but there, that there's a big difference between doing that and then issuing directly issuing directly on chain and so now there's you know there, there are real assets that are being that are being issued on chain which I think is which I which I think is great but I to, to bring it back uh, I don't necessarily think the tech is 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 the is the bottleneck. It's figuring out what to build with the tech. Yeah, um, I think your point is correct, but I think your point kind of proves my point, which is that if it isn't about the tech, what's the advantage of one shiny Alt L one versus another versus ETH? Like, it, there's no like ETH kind of gives you everything you need right now for today's limited slate of use cases. If there was if ETH was just like bowling over because of you know too many people trying to use it or too much throughput and it couldn't process certain types of like ultra high definition triple a video games that solana could or near could then then you have an alt l1 thesis right there but you, you we aren't we aren't even like at the point where eth has problems let alone these others so i think in terms but i do think your point is super valid and again you know on every episode i i blather about commodities because that's just how i was educated i think and to your point about, um, you know, real world assets, 
let's say let's say that you created something like a tokenized carbon credit. That would be a fantastic use case for a real world asset uh, on chain um, because is it it's carbon, so it's real, but it's not like a, it's not like a house where you need the legal system to link the token to the actual real world world asset. You could have a centralized entity that everybody trusts, like Shell or Exxon Mobil, issue Shell Carbon Coin, right? And then if you buy a Shell Carbon Coin and you burn it, then you have trust that Shell will plant a tree or uh, capture another ton of carbon on, on top of one of their you know refineries in Europe or something somewhere, right? Remove carbon from the atmosphere. So I think like. Real world assets uh, are going to have to start as they as they filter on chain. Will have to start off as fungible, um, like kind of fungible commodities, global commodities. I think that's easier than like one off things like real estate. Where like if I own a digital tokenized mortgage, um, like how do I and then I default on it? Like how does the government get it back from me? I don't know. So or how does the how does it get? auctioned off in my default, but you need the legal system to intervene. That's too complicated. Meanwhile, if a single centralized entity does what they promise to do, issue them issuing a token to represent that in a math-based way is probably easier than them having to like go register a new commodity with the ICE, the CME, and get it listed and traded all over the world. You know, it's 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 slightly easier and, and more um, logical. And I don't think you need I don't think you need like Cosmos or some wild app chain to do that. You could just you could just write that smart contract in Solidity and plop it on on uh, you know an L an ETH the ETH mainnet or an L one or an L two. Sorry. Yeah, I I would I would agree with that. Although you know uh, a large portion of this is just because of the capture of a lot of the the ways that these things are traded. I mean, you should know this about carbon credits. You're 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 in you're in that world. There 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 only there's like one place you can trade them. There's one place that custodies them. Or sorry, there's one place that custodies them uh, that has like 70 percent of the market, uh, and so it's just a little bit a little bit tougher to to break to break yeah. in. But I want to um, I do want to I do want to spend a little bit of time just because it's it's just really really fascinating right now. There's been so much talk about how we've we've reached a point where we're looking at clear skies. In the macro world, uh, things are starting to look quite rosy, and so there's people are saying, "Okay, well, the Fed is the Fed is going to be done now. Hikes hikes aren't coming through. Markets are performing. Markets are performing very well. People are going to get reallocated. There's a good now. There, there's good probability good probability of a soft landing. Recessionary talk has gone away a bit." And if you look, one of the one of the things that was kind of interesting to me is that out outside of the top seven performers in the S and P, the uh, EPS is only fifteen x or fourteen x fifteen x. So, and seventy, I think seventy five percent of the performance this year has come from the top the top seven performers that have done very well on sold just tech. Uh, and so, what 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 you see is okay, well. The rest of the world is still reasonably cheap, and we're being driven by the we're we're being driven by these uh, by these by these top performers. So, if if you had to battle that, do you think you could construct a bear case? I could construct a bear case for risk assets. 
Um, I think the bear case for risk assets, including like non-NVIDIA, non-Facebook equities, like things that aren't just benefiting from this unique AI boom. Um, I could see, I you know, out here in Los Angeles, you've got writer's strikes. Um, I could see, you know, new disruptive technology starting to accelerate, plus higher cost of capital starting to accelerate layoffs. Also, again, back to commodities, my um, my my sort of spiritual home, uh, high rates, the impact of high rates takes a long time to filter through to the macro economy. You know, Bridgewater says six to 24 months or something. It's It's not immediate. So okay, the rate hikes all just happened. That doesn't mean that we're poised for uh, for liftoff here. What that means is like, if you're producing commodities, suddenly it's way more expensive to find capital to go and dig for those commodities and pull them out of the earth. So you're going to dig less, right? If you're uh, building houses, it's much more difficult to get a construction loan. If you're, if you're just any sort of business, it's, it's just tougher in this environment. And so like if anything, all the rate hikes just happened. Now wait for all the cracks to start emerging, uh, and then you know I wouldn't be shocked if in 12 months, because there's been less digging, there are fewer natural resources, so commodity prices are higher. That's painful for everybody. There's uh, you know everything is sort of like you get like a stagflationary environment where businesses can't function and, and profit the way that they used to. People can't afford stuff. Uh, mortgages start eating into uh, everybody's bank accounts, uh, savings accounts rather. And, you know, the prolonged impact of where we are uh, hurts risk assets. So I, I think I think the delay effect is would be my bear case. But frankly, I don't know. Like, I, I think the Fed has, it's looking like they might have pulled a rabbit out of a hat here. And I don't have enough experience with like rate hike environments. When was the last big one? It was, they tried in 2018 that you turned Maybe sometime in like early 2000s, this happened. I like I just wasn't a trader, but when the last time this environment was was, um, you know, taking place. Yeah, I mean the reason the reason I asked is because I also think they pulled a rabbit out of a hat, and I always try to figure out. I mean, one of my favorite favorite exercises is just okay. You have you have an opinion. Let's figure out where that opinion is incorrect. Um, and like you 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 make you make both arguments, and then you go with the one that you find the most the most compelling and. I'll be honest, I didn't really find that super compelling. I think it's <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I I I think if you want to get bearish, just look at what happens when rates are high for a while. Like the effects aren't immediate. Yeah, I I think you know, I I I think that that's a it's it's a reasonable argument, but I I also think that, you know, st- th- things are things are relative still rel- relatively cheap uh across across the board right now. And so when I think about crypto in that in that context, especially as inflation inflation is coming is coming down, um, I do think that people are are primed to come back at some point soon. And so that makes me and the reason this is this is important, right, is because the last thing that you want is for the news to come out that we were talking about earlier in the podcast for Bitcoin to trade twenty eight k. And then for the macro environment to suddenly shift in your face and you bought 28K because you think that that news was a great was a great buy and then everything's just started turning on you and you're just squarely, you know, in trouble. That's one of the things I think is is, is really important to just place this in context is if you want to be if you want to be a dip buyer in this environment, what is, you know, what are you what are you looking for to make sure that that dip buy is not 
uh, a bad a bad decision. Depends on your time horizon. Like yeah. here, if if you're a short term dip buyer looking to sell out pops, um, I think I think you'd be crazy to buy it here. I think ultimately what drives asset classes over the long run, what drives trends, is real end user demand for the asset. Right? Like if you're looking to get long human productivity and capitalism, you buy the S&P 500. If you think that the world fundamentally needs more hydrocarbon-based transportation, you buy oil futures. What? Why would you buy crypto for a long, like why would you dip by crypto with a two-year horizon? Um, you know, this may still be the dip to do that. And But at, ultimately at some point, talking about show me, people need to just you need people to need Bitcoin. You need people to need ETH. You need ETH to be settling millions of transactions, either in the digital or the real world or both. And that, that, that has to be important to the economy. Or, or for Bitcoin, you need global, some portion of global trade to be denominated in Bitcoin so that there's always demand from like sovereigns and corporations and you know, merchants for Bitcoin. Not quite there yet, but the possibility of of getting there is real. And so, you know, if you're if you're looking on a five year time horizon, that's why you're you're dip buying crypto here. If your time horizon's shorter, oh man, covered a lot of topics in today's conversation, Jonah. Indeed, we did. It was great to see you, Avi. It was. It was good. We we caught caught up in London for a bit. Had a uh, had good. some really had some really really good food. Really really interesting conversations that I'm glad we didn't record. And I'll uh, I'll chat with you uh, I'll chat with you soon. Chat with you soon, Avi. As always, uh, none of this is investment advice. Crypto is risky. Do your own research. And uh, thanks again for tuning in to Thousand X. Take care, everyone.